hopefully you got a, an outline. I put one out in the back. Uh, it's pretty bare bones, but it, it is an outline nonetheless. Um, some of it might not make sense, but it is an outline. Um, I'll, I'll explain it. Hopefully it will make sense as we go. Um, but uh, let, me, uh, <coughs> let me start us off with a word of prayer, all right? Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for this morning where we can have the opportunity to look ahead at the hope that awaits us, and that hope only awaits us because of your Son who lovingly and willingly humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Help us this morning, Lord. Encourage our hearts when it comes to future things. Help us to know that you have revealed these things to us. So obviously you want us to know these things. Obviously these truths are for our benefit. And I pray that they would teach us this morning, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness, that we might be equipped and complete for every good work. Please bless this time that we have together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I am thankful for this study in eschatology. In seminary, I, uh, I, I took theology four, um, which is essentially eschatology, um, but I took it with classes like ordination prep and preaching lab. So, shamedly, I admit to you this morning that I put um, theology four a little bit more on the back burner uh, because those other classes were a little demanding. Um, so I, I, I love the fact that this past week um, I've been able to really dive into eschatology and refresh my memory on things and learn other things, and I hope that it's, it's a benefit for you as well. And I, I just want to put in a, a disclaimer here. You know, we'll definitely in this 45 minutes or, or what have you, or whatever we have left, um, we'll definitely be able to, I'll be able to clear up any questions that you have concerning eschatology, be able to settle all the debates concerning the end times. You know, there's a lot of views out there, and, uh, and cover every detail about this massively large topic. Okay, I misspoke. I won't be able to do any of those things, but, okay, um, but this is, this is not an exhaustive teaching on eschatology. We're not going to cover everything. That would take years. It would be cool, but it would take years. Uh, but today, I hope to just, just um, teach on, on uh, just like I did with ecclesiology, right? Uh, I want to just whet your appetite for studying theology pertaining to the end times, um, and so this is an introduction, and if it, today is an introduction part one to eschatology, eschatology. Um, so what is eschatology? Uh, to put it simply, the study on end times. Eschatos means last, end, or final. Study of end times. Um, scripture has revealed to us that three out of four major events in, in history have been, uh, have taken place. And those three events are this, right? The, that, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. That, that we fell, that mankind fell to sin, right? And that we've been redeemed through Christ. But, but what's next? What's to still take place? Restoration, right? That he will eventually restore, not destroy, but to restore all things. <coughs> so, <coughs> why why does this tend to get the back burner? Why does, why does eschatology seem to be avoided today? You know, you think of like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, I don't know, whatever you watch today, or you take a good book. You know, we pick it up, right? We watch it, 
and we can't put it down. We have to know. We binge watch, right? A word that, I don't know if we created that word because of Netflix and things, but we, we binge watch show after show after show to do what? To be able to see what takes place at the end, right? We get there. We have to get there. I can't sleep until I see what happens next. We binge on TV, but we do not binge or find ourselves binging on Scripture. Why is that? Why, why do you think? I'll, I'll open it up to the floor. Why do we seem to, why do you think we avoid the study of the end times, the study of eschatology? Why do we push that off? What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a lot easier sitting in front of the TV, and, 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 and it's a little harder to, you know, read and study eschatology, to, to read uh, and study prophecy, okay? What, what else? Any other thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> so, so you want a good surprise. You don't want to ruin the ending, okay? The, all right, anybody else? It's hard to understand. It absolutely is, right? Aaron? Piggyback on that? Yeah. Sure. I mean, raise the hands. Who, who in here, I mean, and we could say this, we could raise our hands for every part of eschatology, but who in here feels like they've got some holes in their eschatology and they would like to fill those holes? They would like to have a better understanding of the end times. Yeah, okay, yeah, there we are. All right. You know, I, I agree. Confusion, many voices. There are a lot of voices. Yeah. I'm going to say, take them for a part of eschatology and just believe we're spiking this planet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and we'd like to have a leg in the fight, but because there's so many views out there that are heated, you know, we're just kind of almost, it's almost as if we're content with just the gospel. You know, Christ saved me, and he'll work it all out at the end. Um, yeah, you know, this is a sad, sad thing to say, but it, it, it can be kind of true. And I, I hope it's not true of, of you, or, or, or I, I pray that your desire is, you know, and hopefully we'll, we'll kindle that desire today. But it, it can almost be true that the world is more excited about the end times than the church at times, unfortunately. I mean, you look at, you look at the movies that are out there about, you know, the world coming to an end. You think about songs, right? They're very much uh, desiring to talk about end times than, uh, than almost the church is. But, but let me steal this line from biblical doctrine in a way to encourage you this morning. The end of the story is the whole point of the story. You hear that? The end of the story is the whole point of the story. We're, we're, we are redeemed through Christ, praise God. But, but wait, there's, there's more, right? There's more. Why, why should we study eschatology? I've got four reasons I want to give to you. We study eschatology, one, because it gives us hope, opening it back up to the floor. How do you think, even with a limited understanding or, or view of eschatology, how do you think uh, that, that, that eschatology, by studying the end times, the doctrine of the end times, how does that provide us hope? See what's going to happen? God wins. God wins. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, comfort where we're going, for sure, right? So it provides us hope 
Next one, it produces holiness. How do you think that it produces holiness? It, it, how, does, how does it help us in our Christian living to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which we've been called? What do you think? How does studying eschatology, how should that uh, pro, uh, provoke our, our living for Christ? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it absolutely does, Candy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's that should affect how we live now right? That should impact how we live now. Um, it helps us face trials in life. Helps us face trials in life. How do, you, how do you figure? Is that true? Should it be true? How does studying eschatology, how should that uh, help us face trials in life? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Tony, what if it's like, what if it's really, what if I'm really going through it? You know, what if it's really hard? What if I'm really having a difficult time? Right? Yeah. 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 compared to the eternal weight of glory, right? Yeah, and I was I was telling Paul before. There's I, I had a a woman that I it was the first um, ministry that I was involved with, um, but this past week she she shot herself, you know. And to come to that point uh, of despair and hopelessness, you know, uh, that's and, and studying my study this week. It's just like man, I wish I wish I could have talked to her. I wish I could have, you know, uh, pointed her to Christ and the hope that's that's there, which I know she's heard before. Um, it also warns the unbeliever, as Candy uh, already mentioned, right? It's a great warning that judgment is coming and which should provoke us to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel, the good news. The Apostle John in Revelation 1, 3 and 22, verse 7, it says this about those who study the prophecy that he records for us. He, he, he talks about a special blessing there. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I do believe that those who study eschatology will be blessed, blessed in this way, that they will have hope, that they will strive after holiness, that they will have maturity when trials come, they will have a greater evangelistic zeal to proclaim the gospel truths to all around them, calling for unbelievers to flee from the wrath to come. You know, but, but you know, and, and, and so we talk about these things, the importance of eschatology, and yet we still have people that, that don't consider it important. But consider these facts. I found these from a, a theological professor that I follow. Um, <coughs> didn't go to master's, but he's, he's real solid. And he said, you know, there are over 300 references to the Lord's coming in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. Or another one, 23 out of the 27 New Testament books mention the Lord's coming. Or another one, Jesus refers to his own second coming at least 21 times. There are around 1,500 Old Testament passages that refer to the second coming. For every time the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. People are exhorted to be ready for the return of Christ over 50 times in the Scriptures. And he's estimated that some, of, uh, some 27% of the Scriptures are prophetic. 27%. That's a lot. That's significant, isn't it? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a quarter of the Bible, prophetic. You know, you think of like a, I think of a doctor, <coughs> a doctor. You know, you get, a doctor has to study a whole lot to be a doctor, yes? What if, would you, would you want to go see a doctor that, that didn't look at 27% of his studies to be a doctor? You know, like he made it to be a doctor, but he, he, he you know, 27% of his learning, he didn't really go through that. You know, like I, that's a significant amount, 27%. You know, and we as Christians who are called to be in God's word, to know God's word, right? We shouldn't push off eschatology, right? God has it in the scriptures. Uh, this prophet, the prophetic sections of, of the scriptures fall just as much under 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as other parts of scripture, right? It is profitable. It will train us in righteousness. It will complete us. It, it, it's profitable to, to correct us, to teach us, right? To rebuke us. God has it there for a reason. So, <clears throat> all right, let's move on. Let's, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. When, when's all this going down? When's Jesus coming back? All right? It's been a lot of talk about this, especially in the times we're living in, right? When's Jesus coming back? The, the kingdom and the restoration of all things? When? The when question, right? Think about all that we have at our disposal. Calculators, radars, maps, Moon phases, I don't even know what that is, but apparently there's eight of them I, I saw um, this past week. And yet none of this technology, okay, and information will be able to answer the when question, right? The disciples asked the when question to Jesus in, in, in Acts 1. And, and what do they get uh, in response from Jesus? It's not for you to know the times and the epics uh, which the, the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, it'd be nice to jot down a date on the calendar. I've gotten a lot more, I've become more scheduled uh, in the last, you know, several weeks. Uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to put it down on the calendar. 
But we can trust with 100% certainty that God is in control and working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God describes himself this way through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, he says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times uh, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. He will bring it to, to, to closing, a closing end. You know, and that, that's comforting. Again, as eschatology uh, comforts us, gives us hope. You know, we could turn on the news and, and lose hope real fast, right? Turn on the, the telly, as, as the people across the pond would say. And, and we see all the, the, the chaos uh, on the news today. But, but, but we could study God's word and know what? That God's got this. We can look at the COVID numbers and the new variant, uh, which, was, uh, which starts with a D. Delta, thank you. And, but we can know, despite whatever those numbers say, that what? God is sovereign, and he's got this. He's bringing all things to, 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 to an end. To, he's going to accomplish all things for his purposes and his glory. We can look at Joe Biden's press conferences, right, and know and be assured that God has got this. doesn't matter who the king is of our country or the president, right? God is going to bring all things to work uh, uh, for his glory and, 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 and his will. Be anxious then, therefore, for nothing. Philippians 4, 6, right? Be anxious for nothing. If we suffer, God will accomplish his will. If our country goes under, God will accomplish his will. If my whole family gets martyred for the sake of the gospel, God will accomplish his will. And, and we can say that because of who he is, Right? No one is like our God. Nothing can thwart his plans. And his future plans are recorded for us in the scripture. Therefore, we can be encouraged, challenged. We can be changed. We can be comforted. We can be convicted, corrected, humble, etc. Right? As we study a, 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 a theology like eschatology. How about this? Have you ever heard the question... Or have you ever thought this question uh, for someone else? Be honest. How could you believe that? How could you believe that? There's a lot of views in, uh, of eschatology, right? Amillennialism, premillennialism, preterism, you know, like there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. How could you believe that, you know? <laughs> Turn over with me to Isaiah 2 4. We're going to use this as an example. Um, hermeneutics. Okay, hermeneutics, the study, the way that you interpret the scriptures, it has a lot to do with how one arrives at a, at a conclusion to, to these things, to these end times. Now, I will say this, though, that being, I, I didn't plan to say this, but, you know, it is, it is true. Yeah, I remember reading that Tim Shally's article a long time ago, and he said, he wrote an article, like, one of the reasons why I'm not a dispensationalist, and his answer was, it really didn't have anything biblically uh, in his reason. Like, there was no Bible in his reasoning. It was just simply because I grew up reformed. So sometimes, I mean, you're, some people are a Cowboys fan because you, you just grew up in a Cowboys house. Some people are Browns fans because you grew up in a Browns house. Uh, pray for you. But, but, like, but some people, you know, that, that, has, that does have some, some part to play in it. But hermeneutics is, 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 is a huge, huge part of this. And we believe at JIBC in a, in a literal, grammatical, historical, and contextual hermeneutic. 
okay? And I'm not saying that to just sound smart or anything, okay? Um, but, and and we, 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 we believe in interpreting the scriptures that way, even in prophetic literature, okay? And the reason I say that is because by looking at the grammar, by looking at um, the historical context, by, by looking at it literally, we hope to see what the original, uh, what, the, what the author's original atten- intent was as they wrote, right? Because it's through trying to dig out that original intent of the, of the writers that will hopefully land us a- a- at the correct and proper meaning of the text, Okay? It's so easy to read ourselves into the text without first considering what the original intent was. And that kind of, that, that const, uh, the consistent uh, hermeneutic, that approach of looking at the Bible grammatically and historically and contextually and historically, I said historically anyway. Uh, but, but anyways, but by looking at it in that way, it, it protects us from um, reading ourselves into the text. Uh, a symbolic allegorization of the text, a spiritualization of the text, the opposite will, in my opinion, lead you into a different conclusion about the church and a different conclusion about the, the promises that God has for the church. Uh, let me give you this example, Isaiah 2.4, which says, <coughs> somebody actually read that for me? I could use a, a water break. Anybody, just loud and proud, shout it out. Proud because it's God's word, not because you should be proud. Go ahead. Yeah, do we still have wars today? Is there harmony and peace uh, with nations today? No. I don't even know what a plowshare or a pruning hook is. Um, but I know what a sword is. I know what a spear is. I know what a gun looks like and is. But, but not, that's not the point. But the point is, right, some take this uh, text, Isaiah 2.4, is, is being fulfilled already through the gospel. People, uh, because of their, um, because all nations are putting their trust in Christ, there can be a harmony uh, of all peoples. But the problem with this is, okay, that the church is not in view here in Isaiah 2.4. Not if you read it with this hermeneutic of a literal grammatical historical, you know, uh, hermeneutic. This is an example of allegory of someone, uh, you know, putting something into this text that's not not present, because there's no literal, grammatical, historical, contextual evidence to support that claim. So how does this explain what is, and that's, when I read Isaiah 2-4 and I hear that, uh, that, that, that conclusion, I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how, how does this, how can this literally uh, be said of the text when they, when they, when they make the, this case? It, it seems like a stretch to me to say that this has already been fulfilled, um, allegorizing the text, you know, when the text says one thing, that's, that's to say when the text says one thing, uh, but they're saying it means another. Like just in that example, they would say that that has a lot to do with the church. An opposing view, uh, an opposing hermeneutic would say that Isaiah 2-4 has a lot to do with the church, but the church isn't present there. Allegorization of the text is when it's saying that the text says one thing, but it's meaning another. That's not present. Um, allowing it, it, it that, that allegorization of the text, that approach, it allows for the Bible to fit into um, one's preferred theological mold 
Whereas I would argue that a literal grammatical historical approach to the scriptures forces the text to determine our theology. Say it a little bit more simply this way. Uh, this, is, this is worth noting. Theology should always be informed by the word, not imposed on the word. You hear that? Theology should always be informed by the word, not imposed on the word. What does that mean? Can somebody... Tell me what you think that means. Yes. Yeah. Which you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's well said. Uh, I um what one way I, I I recorded it just from one of the textbooks that I've I've used in the past. You know, they, they kind of paint it this way that there's two towns, right? You have the, the biblical audience over here in this town, and you've got, you know, us, the church, right now, right in this town, with a river down in between it. And so the, the biblical interpretation step process is it's like this. Step one, you grasp the town in their text. You go to the biblical audience, right, in their context. You consider them, and, and you say, what did the, the text mean to the original audience? Step two, measure the width of the river to cross, right? What are the differences between their town and our town, or the biblical audience and, 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 and us? Step three, cross the principalizing bridge, right? What is the theological principle in this text? Step four, consult the biblical map. How does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? And then step five, right? Grasp the text in our town. How should individual Christians live today considering these theological principles? It's not wrong. Application is not wrong. Application is needed, but, but in its proper order. We shouldn't read ourselves into the text trying to, to, trying to um, see how this, what this passage means to me so fast. We should see what it meant, you know, uh, literally for its intended audience first. What if the, and, and if you consider this, okay, what if you, what if the biblical audience back then had to read our, t- like, what if we flip this around, where the biblical audience back then had to read our messages and our emails and our text messages today? You know, they would have to, they would need the same type of interpretation skills to know what we're talking about. You know, teens say the strangest things, um, you know, they, they do. Whoa, that was lit, man, you know, they, they, those, those are some of the things they say, that was lit, that's to say that whatever the teen is uh, literally experiencing, that it's cool, right? It's not saying that something's on fire or they lit something on fire, okay? Just FYI, if you're ever around a youth and they say something at church was lit, like the church is probably okay. Um, this grammatically is, is a figure of speech. It's how kids talk today. And, you know, 200 years ago, people used the same expression. It was, uh, you know, uh, lit as speaking to somebody who was drunk, okay? So it's changed throughout history. That, that, that phrase. Or if you could take the medical terminology, I've always been bad with this one, but you know, the negative and positive, right? You know, negative seems like something bad, 
You know, positive seems like something good, but when it's talking about COVID-19 or cancer or whatever, right, uh, it's the opposite. And so if they were to look at our day, that's just another example. They would need to know our context. Uh, So again, at JIBC, we interpret the scriptures literally, contextually, grammatically, and historically in order to understand the biblical intent of the author, which is typical of normal communication, really. That's how we normally communicate. you know, that's how we know what each other is saying, just in a normal sense. And if you were to say, okay, but PA, prophecy is not like really normal speech. And I get that. Uh, I get that. It's a little bit challenging, and it's a little different. But I would say that many prophecies, even if you consider Jesus' first coming, they took place literally. You consider this. Jesus came as a virgin. You find that biblically? Absolutely we can. Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was he? Micah 5, 2. Absolutely, right? And, and, and Jesus died an awful death and he was rejected by his people. Isaiah 53, right? And so I, I have to, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of belaboring this point, but I have to, we have to be here because, again, there are so many views. And if you don't line up with what I'm saying right now, you 100% will disagree with much of what I have to say this week and next. Okay, We're kind of setting the table here so we can talk about these things coming up. Now, uh, we come to the who. Who is eschatology all about? <coughs> Christ. Christ, right? Christ. It's all about Jesus. He's the center of it all right? He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants and promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, you can jot this down. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. The question is, the hard thing that we can find, the hard thing that uh, it can be hard knowing what was fulfilled in his first coming and what could be filled, or what was fulfilled in his second coming. You know, we know that he did those things that I just mentioned. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He was the suffering servant, as mentioned in Isaiah 53. We know that passages concerning the atonement for sin uh, were fulfilled along with the new covenant, right? But what's, uh, what's left, you know, we have prophecies concerning the events of Daniel's 70th week, uh, the day of the Lord, salvation of God's people, Israel, the Antichrist, the millennial kingdom, a lot of things of which we'll talk about next week. Do I have a hand raise? Stretch. Okay, but before we jump into that, uh, the, the deep end of, of eschatology, it's important to establish this, that there are two categories, two categories um, of eschatology, personal eschatology and cosmic eschatology. And we're going to cover just personal eschatology. I, I'll be honest with you, I, as I studied, I was like, oh yeah, I could fit all this into next week. You know, I'll just get it all done. You know, we'll cover the highlights, the mountaintops. And I was like, oh, there's no way I can do this. Um, so I, we're going to just look at personal eschatology today. Personal eschatology, just to define it real quick, it deals with the scriptures that address the future human persons, like matters concerning death, the intermediate state, the, the resurrection, judgment, and where we will reside eternally, okay? That's focused more on the individual, okay? Cosmic eschatology then deals with the broader topics like covenants, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. So come back next week, you know, creation as a whole. That's what we'll talk about next week. Okay, so with that, let's dive into personal eschatology. Um, 
category one, personal eschatology. Let's, let's uh, start with death. Let's talk about death. Um, death is a, a reality for all human beings, yes, who live in a broken, sin-cursed world. In, in its basic sense, death means separation. Death means separation. Let me demonstrate that for you. You know what? Let's, let's have, uh, if I can have your help. Could, could someone turn over to Genesis 35, 18? Could someone else turn over to James 2.26? And somebody else, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Genesis 35.18, James 2.26, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Go. <coughs> Death means separation. Gen- Genesis 35.18. Yeah, something in detail that I never noticed before, but Rachel, right, as she's uh, dying in childbirth, uh, or dying in in, in labor, as she's in labor, um, the text literally says her soul was departing, for she was dying. See a separation between body and soul, right? James 2.26, who's got that one? Right, for as, as the body apart from the spirit is dead. Right, see that separation. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Yeah, the dust or our flesh, right, returns to the earth and the spirit returns to God. There are three types of death mentioned in the scriptures. We have physical death, right? Physical death, when the body separates from the soul through the body shutting down or deteriorating. We have spiritual death, right? When uh, one is uh, alienated from God, right? Separated from God in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 type of a way, right? The walking dead, it says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that, that those who are alienated from God are, are dead in their trespasses and sins, And then you have eternal death, eternal separation from God. That is when someone is dead spiritually, also dies physically, right? Eternal death is as dead as any dead person could ever be, right? It's to be eternally separated from God's presence, to be eternally dead, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Their separation is also destined for the lake of fire, which is said in Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let me ask you this question, ABF. Is death, is death, what do I have, how do I have it phrased? Is death natural? Is it natural? Yeah, is physical death, yeah. Is physical death natural? Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely, that's it, right? It feels natural to us now, 
but you won't find that anywhere in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? That's not how God created us. Yeah, it, it, it is a result of sin. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, who was who? Adam, right? And, and death through sin. What does the Bible say about death in the end? Anybody know? Eschatology, understanding of death. Death in the end. What does the Bible say about that? They'll be what? Brought back for judgment. Anybody else? Lake of fire is, yep. Somebody else? Be overcome. Yeah, for two, two texts that I want to share with you. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, which Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the final destination for death is found in Revelation 20, verse 14, right? which talks about the destiny of death when it says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And how is that victory accomplished, guys? Through Christ. Through Christ, right? Through Christ, we can say 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 44 through, or 54 through 55, excuse me, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you see how studying eschatology can, can encourage us, can, can give us hope, right? Even just considering the topic of death, right, which is all around us. People die all the time as a result of sin. Um, the next subject I wanted to make mention of in the category of personal eschatology is the intermediate state. The intermediate state. Have you ever wondered what happens if death, right? We just talked about this. Death is a separation of the body and, and the spirit, yes? Okay, so has anybody ever wondered what happens to your soul before it's rejoined with your body? I have, and I'm thankful for my study this past week. All right, I'm excited that I get to share this with you. Um, I like this definition of the intermediate state. The intermediate state refers to the conscience existence of people between physical death when you die physically, and the resurrection of the body, which applies to both believers and unbelievers, right? Unbelievers and believers, I believe, will both experience the intermediate state. And there's not a whole ton of information I can give you about the intermediate state, but the Bible does talk about it. And so I want to talk about it with you. Um, <coughs> for unbelievers, if we look at them and their, uh, their experience with the inter, uh, inter intermediate state, this place, I believe, is called Hades or, or Sheol, um, which could just refer to a place in dead in general. But when it's applied in the New Testament, the use of the word, th this, th um, it, it applies to a waiting place for the wicked before they enter into final judgment, which would be the eternal lake of fire, as seen in Revelation 20, verse 13. And perhaps one of the best texts that I can think of to support or describe such a place would be found in Luke 16. If you want to just turn there with me, Luke 16 uh, and verse 19, uh, concerning the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. Um, and I know, I know that this is a parable, okay? And parables were, were earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Now, I do believe that Jesus, it, though he's talking about this story, this allegory, that this this, this allegory is, is, is talking about something quite literal. And I think what he's describing here is the intermediate state. Okay? 
<clears throat> All right, so let's look at that together. 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man, that's kind of gross, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham uh, far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise them uh, from the dead, rise them from the dead, excuse me. What happened when the rich man died? What happened when the rich man died? He was buried, right? He was buried, but his soul was transitioned to Hades, right? Where Luke 16, 23 says he experienced what? Torment, suffering, and anguish. Who did he call out for and why? He called out for who? Abraham, right? Abraham for, for what? Yeah, for relief, for mercy, because he was in anguish, and, and there were flames, and he was in pain. What else can we observe about the rich man's experience in Hades? He had mind and memory, right? He spoke of Abraham, uh, so he knew who Abraham was, and he also desired to help his five brothers, so he, he remembered who his five brothers were. He was also aware that this, plan, this pain that he had was deserved. Abraham's response goes, goes further, right, to reflect on the deeds of the rich man's life. You know, Hades is, it's not just this plain, uh, you know, sometimes I, I errantly, I, hadn't, I don't know how, I didn't plan to share this with you, but I errantly made a, a critical error in my parenting uh, a couple weeks ago where I delivered discipline on a child of mine without knowing what had happened. And I wasn't, and I, and, and, and trying to explain what had happened, which I didn't even understand what had really happened. I, you know, I made a big mistake. Okay. But, 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 but Hades, you know, we should always, as a parent, we should always tell our, our children why they disobeyed, right? As we discipline them. Uh, but, but in Hades, we'll know. We'll know why. In Hades, they'll know why they're there. They'll be able to reflect on their sinful living for all of eternity. Well, until the intermediate you know, stage is over. But, but, but that, that, that's, a, 
that's a, that's a thought to, to think on you know, for a little while, right? And on the flip side, let's talk about the inter- intermediate stage for the believer. It's obviously completely the opposite experience. One commentator discussed it as a peaceful existence in heaven with Jesus between the physical death and the resurrection of the body. Um, this is where the believer is destined to go before the resurrection of the, of the body. Consider the, the, the martyr Stephen in Acts 7.59. He says this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't say receive my, my body, but receive my spirit as he's being stoned. Um, <coughs> or you, you have the thief on the cross. Jesus actually says to him, today, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That thief's body wasn't in, in paradise with Jesus, but rather it was his spirit. And perhaps my favorite example, um, because I don't want you to think that the intermediate uh, state is some, like, you know, drag, because it's not. Paul didn't think it was. Paul in Philippians 1, it says, you know, he kind of, you remember that text? where It's like Philippians 1, 21, and around like 23, where he's kind of, it's almost like he's debating. Like, you know, it, it would be probably good for me to be around you, the church. It would be to your benefit. But, like, to be with Christ would be better right? To be with Christ would be better. And um, this should be the heart of all, of all believers, right? To be with Christ. Um, just think of it, rest from battling sin, rest from the hardships of this life. Uh, I, I, had a, I had a tough, tough um, conversation with a loved one um, recently, and um, they said, they asked me this question, and the question wasn't hard, but it was hard to just knowing what they, were, what they were considering, what was going through their head was hard. Um, but they said, what's so great about being in a sinless place? Why should I be so excited about that? Or how can heaven be better than this experience that I'm experiencing now? What's the problem with that? I'll, I'll open it to the floor. What do you guys think? You guys want to, I, I have some thoughts, but I've been talking a lot. Yeah. Uh, I'll go further to say that there's clearly a, a greater love for the world in that question. Um, it doesn't understand the holiness of God. You know, God is, is holy. It, it should, it should, it should uh, don't, don't you have conviction when you sin against God, right? You know, if you're, if you're truly of him and in him, you know, you should have con- conviction and guilt over your sinfulness and a desire to be in a sinless place and never sin against God ever again right? It has a low view of God's holiness, and it doesn't understand that th- those questions don't understand God's promises that he's, he's, he's given to us. We should have this great anticipation for what's to come, right? 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the intermediate state for believers is not some, some drag. It's, it's incomplete because we don't have our spiritual bodies yet, in my estimation, you know, the way, way I interpret the scriptures, but um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's to be at home with, with Christ. And also going to Rick's um, Revelation 6 text, you know, he, he mentioned Resla- Revelation 6. Um, I think it's important to note that just like Hades, for, for the unbelievers, we will have self-awareness and probably even knowledge about circumstances that are taking place in the world. Uh, if we look at a Revelation 6, 9 through 11, uh, where John saw the souls of those who had been martyred for their faith, who sought justice for their murderers. That's what that text is talking about. Uh, it shows their awareness 
and also demonstrates that the souls in the intermediate state um, could be recognized. Even though they were spirits, I'm not sure what a spirit looks like, but John, as he saw this in his vision, he saw that they were spirit, uh, that they were souls. It literally says in the text, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had been born, or that they had born. And, and later we see that those souls in that text are actually wearing clothes and garments, um, which is interesting. So, <coughs> next topic, um, the resurrection of, of our bodies. Scripture describes uh, for us that we are naked without our resurrected body. Naked. Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians 5 with me. 1 Corinthians 5. And if someone could read that for me. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 3. Okay, wait. First Corinthians five. Okay, keep going. Yeah, I'm just keeping you on your toes. Just make just making sure you're you're right where you need to be. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I messed up in my notes, brother. Hey, pivot. Everybody, pivot with me. Yeah, I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh no. You know what happened? Uh, yeah. All right. Can you can you somebody read that for me? Thanks, brother. Yeah, I'm not afraid to talk about sexual immorality, which is what 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about. But, but like here, we're, we're, we gotta, we gotta, we're setting out on a course here, and we gotta, we gotta wrap, I gotta put a bow on this soon. Um, but what, what does Paul long for most in that passage? What's he long for most? Yes. And, and specifically in terms of his body being resurrected, right? Not, not only will this world be restored, but also to our bodies will be restored. I've been talking to some older folks in the last couple of weeks, and, uh, you know, some of the arthritis and the pains that, 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 that they talk about sound ex excruciating, right? And one of the things that I try to encourage them with is just, just hang on, brother. Hang on, sister. Keep depending on the Lord, you know, and, and using that, that text. You know, this is momentary light affliction, right, compared to the eternal weight that, that's promised to us. And that one day, not only will this world be restored, but your body, too, will be restored. And that's encouraging. Believers, the, believers and unbelievers alike will, will have resurrected bodies. Jesus states that in John 5, 28 to, and, and 29, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out, those who have gone, uh, done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. And it's important to note that the resurrected body that, that, that you receive will be uh, fit for the destination that you're headed to, Right? For the believer, it will be fitted for glory, to be able to withstand the glory of God and not perish, which is an amazing thought. If you know your Old Testament, you know what happens when men, mere mortals, stand before the glory of God. Ah, uh, what to leave in, what to leave out. Job expects 
resurrection, and which is interesting because Job chronologically could have been the first book written in the scriptures, right? But we have that famous text, right? Um, John, uh, Job uh, 19, 25 to 26, which is the text where he says, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. In verse 26, he says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, you know, he's just sitting there in his loincloth, and he's got swords and all sorts of stuff going on, right? And he says, Yet in my flesh, this is his anticipation, yet in my flesh I shall see God, right? After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He anticipated that bodily resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49 would be a great text for you to write down. This is a text that deals exhaustively uh, with, maybe not exhaustively, it doesn't tell you every little detail, but it has a lot to say about the resurrection uh, of our bodies. And Philippians 3.21 says that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Oh, this is rough. Um, I don't want to end here. Uh, when does this resurrection occur? I believe it occurs at the rapture, which we'll talk about next week. Um, and I, I want to say that the unbeliever's body won't be fit for glory, obviously, but what will it be fit for it will be fit for God's wrath, right? It facing God's wrath for all eternity, which should, again, make us, make us shudder. It should provoke our, our evangelism, right? And, and that goes to everything that we've said today. You know, eschatology should give us hope, should produce in us holy living, should produce, uh, help us face trials, warn the unbelievers uh, of judgment that's coming, because if, if theology, theology fails, right? Theology fails if it just ends in the, 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 the mind. Even if it just ends in the heart, right? Theology should change, it should, it should, when what we know should change what we love, and what we love should change how we live. And if theology doesn't permeate our heart, if it doesn't impact our heart, then your theology is a dead theology, right? Theology then fails. For theology to be worth anything. It has to change the way that we live. Could somebody close us in a, in a word of prayer?